0: Any particularly interesting happening on any one of your nine trips? Well, well that is fascinating. Obviously, well, uh, extraordinary. Well, one uh, one case was very interesting because that was the only time that uh, it was a quite a good sized ship, a big ship, and uh, they had a quite a party-like affair where they danced and all of that. It's the first time I really seen him dance. Orchestra? Uh, well, there were, it was no, no orchestra, but they had uh, uh, a machine. That produced, and I understand that that music really was coming from their own planet directly, like we do on no, radio. A radio program. Yeah, something it like that. It was what we call in the a remote. Yeah. Like in the old days. Real, real remote. Band, yeah, would be, and you know, at the edge of the beach hotel. And yeah. And, yeah. And you know the funny thing, too, uh, the ships in their homes, the same thing, I mother have mentioned. Uh, the ships in their homes are uh, illuminated, like the walls are, and produce the light instead of some light somewhere hanging. Hmm. It's that kind of material. Did you dance at this party? I tried it. I couldn't make it. I'm not you much of my a dance myself. Like a, well, tell us about your sitting it out. Well, uh, I was watching. I was interested in their footwork. It's a lot different than ours. In what way? Uh, well, uh, uh, I think we use uh, three steps, and I don't know much about dancing. But well, something like that, Listen, like a two-step and so-and-so ca- common. Uh, they use, I would uh, judge the way I was watching it, probably... Four and six steps yep. and so forth in, uh, in various ways, you know. Uh, well, I think that
1: We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friends, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here.
2: Well, that's why we're all here. Uh, we're on the phone here with Chris O'Brien, if he can hear me. Whoa! Can you hear me, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> did i blast your ear out uh no oh okay uh chris has been on the show before and uh chris i'd like to let you know that your shows have the highest amount of downloads of the uh anything i've got up online really yeah and it's uh, uh i'm not
1: sure if that's a good thing or maybe we should all be frightened
2: no we should all be charging for them but i put them up for free since I'm not making any money off this show, I figure I guess I shouldn't make any money off this show. Anyway, <laughs> it will taint things. Then we can't do exactly what we want. Oh, well. Uh, yeah. We try harder. Yeah. Uh, Chris is the author of at least two books I know of, which are Mysterious Valley and Enter the Valley. And um, there's another one coming out, right? Uh,
1: correct. Uh,
2: exactly,
1: uh, I'd like to think three coming out, but
2: definitely one. Possibly two, and probably three. You mean three further books coming out? Yeah. That you're working on? Well, one one's actually been printed and published, hasn't it, or very soon? Yeah. Um, uh,
1: Secrets of the Mysterious Valley will be out in the spring. Okay. On uh, Adventures Unlimited Press.
2: Does uh, that have to do with, um, I, I would suppose it have to do with the San Luis Valley and the mainly the cattle mutilation stuff, but all the other stuff associated with it, right? Correct. Uh, maybe you should give some people that don't know who you are listening now and then later on downloads a little bit of background, and then we'll talk about uh, some of the, the uh, projects you're involved with right now as well.
1: Um, okay. Well, uh, to make a long story short, I'm... A very motivated uh, amateur paranormal investigator. I've uh, been involved in sorry, there
2: work, we go.
1: I've been involved in investigative work for fifteen plus years. Huh? I moved uh, to the San Luis Valley in South Central Colorado, North Central New Mexico, uh, back in 1989, and the first house that I lived in for the first two years I was there was uh, haunted and uh, that kind of set me on a, a path of you know a aspiring gumshoe uh, paranormal investigator and by the time I uh, found myself uh, New Year's Eve in 1992 93 uh, uh, we had quite a wave of uh... Unusual you know, UFO activity, uh, uh, live, uh, unusual livestock deaths, all kinds of uh, interesting reports of the strange, the weird, the wonderful, the high strange, uh, however you want to put it. And I started out in early 93 uh, with the very innocent uh, agenda of, of investigating some of these very compelling reports of strange activity uh... to write a, a you know a five hundred word article in my local <laughs> uh... little town newspaper and within a matter of months i found myself uh... in front of uh... you know uh, tv cameras and 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 doing segments for sightings and uh... you know all these different tv shows back in the nineties that were covering all this type of uh... of, of mysterious types of, of events and yeah. I very quickly uh realized after about two weeks of uh doing some pretty in depth uh research into the wonderful, magical San Luis Valley that there was just an absolute uh mine, uh, for lack of a better word, of of unusual events that had occurred there and had been documented over the years, uh, going all the way back actually into the seventeen hundreds, that nobody had really um, you know, Consolidated all together into one place and 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 published. So, I uh, very early on I realized there was quite a quite a bit of uh, a fertile ground for uh, you know uh, a book or two or three, as it turns out. And for uh, the the next ten years, I had to deal with uh, you know, for lack of a better word, just flap levels of activity. I mean, uh, there were points there where we were having. Um, you know more nights or more days uh, with reported activities than uh, days that didn't have any and what, I, uh, what kind of activity quite a quite a few thousand uh, <laughs> miles a month uh, running around uh, you know documenting this and investigating these what, uh, what kind of activity Chris well everything from you know just multiple witness UFO sightings to um, you know reports of uh, <laughs> yeah, of all kinds uh, Bigfoot, um, actually, uh, had quite a spate of Bigfoot sightings, uh, in December 94. We had... In Colorado.
2: Uh, say again? In Southern Colorado. Right, um... Well, we all know, you know, everybody knows about the Northwest Bigfoot, but what few people know is that they're, they've been seen in every state, I think, every state of the United States, except maybe Hawaii, but I'm, I'm kind of... Uh,
1: actually, they, they have had sightings in Hawaii, uh, they're not really, uh, considered Bigfoot there, but... I think 48 out of 50 states have had Bigfoot sightings. And you'd think that Colorado, with all its, you know, uh, remote uh, wilderness areas, would have quite a number of sightings yeah. over the years. But much to my surprise, when I, uh, you know, I had seven sightings uh, literally in a week, and, um, you know, I, I started researching, uh, you know, Bigfoot sightings in Colorado and found out that there had only been a handful over the years that had been documented. And uh, I, I found that quite compelling um, and much to my surprise um, two or uh, three of the sightings uh, the seven sightings that that I personally investigated featured Bigfoot in conjunction with uh, with hunting um, it, it appeared that the uh, it actually was a pair of Bigfoot uh, what appeared to be a, a male and a female uh, a pair, appeared to be stalking elk in one one uh, incident and uh, another incident that was actually a uh, the uh, footprints from both uh, um, primates or whatever you want to call them uh, were videotaped by the sheriff, uh, uh, by the now uh, sheriff of uh, Cornelius County and his father, and they followed these tracks all the way down from a very remote area, uh, kind of a mesa area, down to a river, and uh, the larger of the two sets of tracks um, also had uh, elk blood that was uh, appeared to be dripping uh And uh, it was, I guess, surmised by the investigators and myself that uh, the larger one had either uh, an elk haunch or or a large piece of elk on its shoulder, and uh, it was bleeding out and leaving behind uh, traces of blood. And I always thought Bigfoot were herbivores. I I never heard of any reports of Bigfoot being meat-eaters, but um, much to my surprise, uh, uh, these reports do... Um, tend to indicate that uh, the, at least this particular uh, group of Bigfoot, if you will, um, are hunters, and I uh, I found that quite compelling. And uh, of course, I've done quite a bit of research uh, into the local folklore, uh, the Native American traditions relating to Bigfoot in the area, and but but these are just uh, a handful of. <laughs> literally hundreds and hundreds of uh, unusual um, activity reports that, uh, you know, I kind of ran myself ragged for ten years uh, investigating, and my uh, my event log of uh, unusual activity um, is up to about a thousand events um, with actual dates and times associated with them. Uh, if I had, you know, if I put all my <laughs> stories that grandma told somebody or you know rumors and uh, secondhand accounts of uh, events that had happened over the years. Uh, you know it'd be a, a stack, probably three or four feet off the ground. Uh-huh. Um, so you know I had a quite a, a plethora of uh, unusual events to uh, to investigate, and uh, unfortunately, quite a number of them. You know I I was covering 10,000 square miles, and uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of them went by the wayside because I just you know one person can only do so much, and uh, but uh, my books do, uh, I think, a fairly, uh, fairly good job of documenting uh, quite a bit of uh, hard work that uh, you know, I put into investigating all these events. And, uh, and lo and behold, uh, you know, by the time we got to 98, 99, the, uh, the activity went away. I mean, we went from nightly activity for the better part of six years, and then it started to tail off in about 97, 98, and then by 99, 2000, um, all our strange activity kind of disappeared. So, uh, you know, so I you kind of breathed a sigh of relief, actually, to be honest with you. I, I uh, oh, okay. kind of got burnt out running around uh, documenting all this stuff. And, of course, uh, you know, for your listeners do, do uh, understand, I uh, had quite a network of uh, law, law enforcement officials, ex-military, uh, trained observers, uh, scientists, um, you know, folks in the community, uh, you know, we had quite a quite a network. And, and uh, right when I was really getting the network totally dialed in, uh, in 98, 99, then boom, all the activity stopped. So, so you <laughs> so left? So that kind of escalates. Is that when, uh,
2: is that when to, you moved uh, away? Uh, say oh. again? Is that when you moved away?
1: Or to um, actually, I, I left in 2002, and I moved back east for a couple of years to uh, catch my breath, uh, work <laughs> on my third book, <laughs> and uh, the life and times of uh, the ubiquitous uh, Ray Stanford, uh, who some, some probably not many of your listeners would uh, recognize that name,
2: but I'm. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about Ray um, during the show. Yeah, Ray is a whole. Show in and of himself. I'm trying to get him on here, so maybe we can get him. That would
1: be great, boy. If you could, you know, maybe get me on too, so I can help. You know, I'll be a straight man.
2: (laughs) Uh, Okay, we've only got one phone line, so we'll have to see what we can do. Maybe we can get you on by cell or something. Okay. Uh, So you so you moved away from um, Southern Colorado there uh, after all this activity uh, petered out. You wrote your book, and, that, and then you've moved back to uh, Arizona now. And what what made you move back? And and maybe that leads into what you what what kind of projects you're involved in right now, which I talked to you about a couple of weeks ago. And right. I thought this would be a great show, even though it was just a couple of things we have mentioned. But it branches off into so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it does. What brought does you great. back?
1: Yeah, as you as you are aware, um, I I am one of those uh, few investigator researchers out there that believe. Uh, for lack of a better word uh, assume, uh, maybe surmise uh, I'm looking for a good descriptive word here but I, I, I have an inkling that there is an interconnectedness between uh, most if not all paranormal events uh, in terms of their interconnectedness with one type of event uh, and another and, and one thing that you know, very early on that really kind of uh, ticked me off uh, to be honest with you is you know when we would have a wave of UFO sightings and Bigfoot would show up, and then we'd have, um, you know, unusual spook lights occurring uh, at the same time, and and weird, uh, aberrant social behavior in the community. I, I, I really, uh, without any shadow of a doubt, I felt there was a, a connection uh, between these events, even yeah. though on the surface uh, there was no apparent real uh, reason to, to to you know suspect this. But, you know, I've really done quite a bit of research, and uh, and. And, uh, done, you know, dovetailed my work with a lot of other, uh, investigators and researchers out there. And I do suspect that there is an interconnectedness between, uh, many, if not all paranormal phenomena, especially when they are concurrent, uh, when you have concurrent activity in a, uh, a geospecific, uh, location. Um, I had events, for instance, in the San Luis Valley where we'd have a, an, an incredible deluge of UFO reports over a three-day period. And at the same time, we would have uh, an unusual amount of fires, uh, like house fires or, or grass fires. There would be an unusual amount of roadkill on the road. There would oh. be strange weather. Um, all kinds of uh, weird stuff, including in this particular three-day period, um, a high-profile wedding in a small town. And the, um, the bride's sister was the, uh, the maid of honor, and they got into an argument, and the maid of honor uh, knifed her sister to death, who was the bride. Yeah. I mean, all this occurred in a three-day period, and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. There's something going on around here. And, uh, you know, you start tying all this stuff together and looking at it, um, you know, attributionally or, or, you know, looking looking for some sort of connecting point between these events, and, you uh, Other than the time element, there's got to be some, you know, in my mind, there's got to be some sort of uh, rationale, either it's microwaves or
2: some sort of, you know, behavior modification A disturbance in the force, something. Say again? A disturbance in the force, something. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, For for lack of a better term. Well, you know, that that was one of my questions. (laughs) Well, that was one of my questions because... uh, it, well, leads to a few of them. The, the first one is, uh, well, basically what you just said, the connection between a bunch of different paranormal activities. And, and you know, a spike in, in violence and unrest and all that is actually paranormal because it's not really normal. It's, a, it's, you know, above or away from the norm. So, actually, I've never really heard that except for maybe... Uh, Maybe the example of uh, Mothman, but I don't think there were too many uh, during that period. At least the Keel investigated. There wasn't too much criminal activity. At least he didn't report it. However, that was it. Ended with that bridge falling down and people getting killed. Uh, right. Well, you know, again, that would
1: be you know um, a good point and uh, a good observation. Um, that would be a, a, a classic example of, of coherent um, some sort of coherency between uh, you know unusual events. Of course. The uh, the Mothman uh, scenario did occur, you know, over a period of three years. Uh, yes. The particular instance that I was talking about was three days, and when it happens over a period of three years, you can, uh, you know, dismiss it as being coincidence or whatever. But when all this stuff just piles up in a three or four day period, you you really uh, <laughs> you have to be absolutely blind and numb not to, uh, you know, you notice the uh, you know synchronicity and not you know be intrigued by it i I, i'm just a person eternally curious so uh, you know i'm always looking for i'm always looking for uh connection points and uh and uh i'm looking for a word here help me (laughs) Uh, a nexus well a nexus yeah that's one way of putting it but um you know, it's it's an attributional quality of uh, you know between unusual events. Oh, I
2: see. You're you're looking for an adjective that actually describes the the uh, effect. Yeah, what, exactly. What's yeah. causing it?
1: Yeah. Um. You know, somebody said. Uh, you know, uh, somebody accused me of being. Uh, you know, a person that's always looking for. You know, potential connections between what what appear to be um, you know unconnected events and. I, I I really do feel and i I hate to sound like I'm getting up on the soapbox here Greg, but no, go I really ahead. do feel it there's not enough uh emphasis placed on um you know trans uh trans of uh you know paranormal event um study uh you know if you if you have a sequence of events that occur that seem to be unrelated but there's a, a time element involved um you know, there may be some sort of attributional thinking that needs to be applied to it. And, and, and I've really, you know, made it my uh, uh, priority to go ahead and, and always be aware and always write down anything, no matter how inconsequential it might be. Right. You know, I have calendars that I have every year that each of the days, you know, that things happen, I write little notes on the calendar and then I go back later. And, you know, at the time it doesn't seem to have any... Any relevance or bearing on on any other you know companion events yeah. or what have you, but when you look back at it later and you go, well, wow, yeah, this happened here, and then the next day this happened, the next day this happened. Basically, you know, it's, it's hard not to, right? Um, be open to you know that sort of um, attributional thinking as 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 as, as, a, as a potential way of of maybe thinking outside of the box about this stuff.
2: Right. You, when you say that, it sounds like a very useful tool because. Um, it's it's uh, a technique, it sounds like, of uh, kind of manual meta- meta-analysis, which is usually done by computer, and that's how um, paranormal research or parapsychologists do a lot of their research. And it's also, strangely enough, brings to mind what um, Jacques Vallée, among other people, did in the 60s, feeding all these UFO reports as many details as they could get into a computer program and finding out if any patterns emerged. And they did yeah, find exactly. some interesting patterns.
1: Or, or, Amaya um, Michel and, and his, uh, you straight know, seminal work, uh, yeah. you know, UFOs in the Straight Line Mystery, which, uh, you know, uh, talked about an incredible event, uh, series of events in, um, early 50s France where,
3: uh-huh.
1: uh, these, these, uh, cloud ships and other, uh, UFO type, uh, um, activity would occur in these in these very discernible straight lines through the right. country, and uh, and it was so compelling that uh, Michelle uh, actually did a you know wrote a whole book on 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 yeah. the subject. And of course, you know I am, <laughs> as you uh, kind of pointed out here, I am quite a uh, an aficionado of of LA and Michelle and and John Keel and and other. Uh, not very popular uh, thinkers, I think, in, in ufology, but uh, in my mind, uh, the real, you know, cutting-edge, groundbreaking, uh, outside-of-the-box thinkers in, in the field. And, you know, I've been very, very um, um, stimulated by their, their approach and, and their thinking, and uh, I, do, I do tend to lean in the direction of, of looking at these uh, various... You know, conundrum type uh, mysteries uh, from outside of the box as, as much as I can, and of course, mm-hmm. as soon as you realize you're outside of the box, you put yourself back in. So, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's uh, you know, it's a fertile ground for <laughs> for debunkers and skeptics and, and the rest of it. But but I don't really care because if I did, I wouldn't be involved in this stuff.
2: Yeah. Well, the thing is, I think that you know, when you mention these things, it makes me excited and happy because you know, I and people I know and you have been kind of thinking in this way for a long time, and I'm glad people are finally applying this kind of thinking again to anomalies. I, and the other thing that comes to mind is, um, as a question was, uh, did you have any, you know, uh, can you give me other examples that kind of stick out in your mind besides this? Um, I know you could probably give me hundreds, but this, this little time frame of the you know, the murder happening and the fires and all that, I mean, does it, 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 well, well, this, hap- this happen again and again in your research? Yeah. Well, well
1: here's here's a classic example. Um, in fact, one oh, that I'm, <laughs> i I still um, shake my head when I even think about it. Um, a couple of friends of mine are real, um, you know, amateur amateur investigators in their own right. Really, uh, you know, involved in in following my research and, and investigative work uh, there in the San Luis Valley and. And they had a logging company, you know, where they'd go out and they'd, uh, you know, uh, cut down deadwood uh, vigas, you know, big trees, and, and bring them back, you know, big trailer loads of uh, 20-foot, 25-foot logs to uh, use in building earthships and straw bales. And uh, one day they went out, you know, 6 in the morning uh, to cut some wood, and um, they were traveling up a dirt road towards uh, Storm King Mountain on uh, Canaro Pass. And uh, on... There was a creek running up next to the road, and they noticed there was this cow laying on the ground. They could tell that it had very unusual uh, incisional, uh, evidence of, you know, like your typical cattle mutilation, uh, mm-hmm. uh, scenario. And yeah. they stopped their truck in the trailer and, and got out. And the, um, <laughs> just to show you what kind of people in the San Luis Valley, uh, they had gotten a hold of some really good, um, uh, liquid acid from uh, somewhere in California. Oh, and they had decided to go logging on acid, which, which <laughs> I, I do not. Please, please, listeners, do not uh, you know uh, do this at home. Uh, these guys are uh, semi-trained professionals. They're professional
2: um, acid heads and loggers. <laughs> yeah, logging on acid. That's
1: that's a real good one. Um, I can vouch for their um, their um, party, uh, you know, party mentality. Uh, of course. You know, you and I, Greg, would never even consider doing something as crazy as that, but these well, guys... Well, not are at really the same time, anyway.
2: Off. Huh? Not at the same time, anyway. Uh, no, no. Uh,
1: <laughs> anyway, um, they they hadn't gotten off. They, they'd done some of this liquid uh, just prior to, to running up the road. They were going to, like, hang out for a while, let it hit them, and then go logging, which to uh, me <laughs> uh, <laughs> is <laughs> a little bizarre, but knowing them uh, like they did uh, was not... Believe me, I... I, uh, I absolutely trust their, uh, <laughs> their story, um, and so uh, it, it, just to digress a little bit, it was a very interesting scenario because the creek had um, choked up, there was a little pathway um, to get by, it, it, the, the mutilated cow was right in the path that was very narrow between the fence line and the creek, and the herd of about 30 cows, I, if I remember, were trapped in this corner of the pasture, and they couldn't get by to escape to the rest of the pasture because this mutilated animal was there right in their way, and they were all milling around and really agitated, and uh, one of the guys got out and uh, and moved, and uh, the biggest female came up. There was about uh, 15 cows with uh, 15 calves, yeah, and moved them all by. He, he, he somehow in his altered state, um, or soon-to-be altered state, was able to to um convince the cows it was okay to get by this mutilated animal and escape into the rest of the pasture which was you know many acres yeah and um and so he moved each one of the ca- the cows by and they'd run with their baby they'd run by and um they photographed the site and well i have the photographs. Uh, one of my uh better um actually photographic cases and um Uh, So they went up and they they did their logging thing on the way back totally, but they came by and and they stopped at the site to see, you know, to really check out the cow, uh, even better, and it was gone. And the rancher didn't know anything about it, said, I ain't missing no cows, blah, 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 I did a little, uh, you know, uh, follow-up on it. But um, the reason why I bring this up, Greg, is that was the day that Timothy Leary died. Yeah. So just to give you, you know, this weird off the wall attributional, um, it's a c word. I'm looking for it. I'm looking for. It. I'm still looking for the word, Greg. You got to help me here. Um, a c word. It's a c word. I, if I remember, it's when you take one thing and attribute it to something else.
2: Well, if somebody wants to email in uh, there, you go, uh, Radio Mister <laughs> <or> Radio Misterioso. <laughs> That's M-I-S-T-E-R-I-O-S-O at dslextreme.com or my the other email you may know. Uh, I'm embarrassed. Yeah, well, I am too. I, 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 I For some reason, the last few years, I've had trouble with words. You know, it's very funny. When you, you came up with that story just now when I pushed you, I wrote down another question. Okay. And I was saying, well, what about uh, the meaning or the theme of something as a nexus, rather than a time frame, and you sort of came up with that something that connected both of those together by by saying this thing about Leary, because it's well, not a and it's, again, it's, it's, it's not a really causal connection. Case. It's like a synchronicity thing, right? Well, the
1: Snippy the Horse case again, I always tout as being a, a, a similar example. You know, uh, September seventh, se- September eighth, nineteen sixty seven, was probably the the, 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 arguably the three or four days in the country where more people were blowing their minds open with psychedelics than probably any other time period. And you had your most famous, uh, you know, the beginning of the publicized uh, phase of, of uh, unusual livestock deaths, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the primary case of, of that whole wave, the first publicized case really occurred right during that time period. And of course, need I remind your listeners? Where's the only place that you're going to find psilocybin mushrooms in nature? <laughs> you know, for instance.
2: Well, uh, in the in, northwest, and I guess
1: can in you find cow, out in cow dung?
2: Yeah, cow turds.
1: There you go. So, and what's the only? What's the only uh, besides? Uh, um, uh, uh, I think uh, what is it, Streptococcus, uh, uh, Bacillium, or whatever that. Uh, bacteria is uh which can survive in space the only other life form that can survive in space to, to my knowledge is uh mushroom, mushroom spores. spores yeah right so you know I, I my mind does uh you know venture off into all sorts of directions but um you know generally though i do um stick to what i can demonstrate and uh, and document and uh I'm, I'm much more of a hard-nosed investigator. Um, we're kind of getting off into my "what if" uh, sort of side of the. Yeah, my but rank, you but. know
2: what? The "what if" stuff is the stuff that keeps people interested for some reason. They don't care about the boring facts for some reason. I don't <laughs> well, know an, why. There's enough when of the boring just, stuff
1: out there. That's for sure. Yeah, you it's know, just I, as
2: fascinating.
1: Yeah, there's tons of people out there spouting the same old stuff. We, we definitely owe it to ourselves as a species to get outside of the box and redefine um, the parameters of our of our investigative will you
2: know well what kind of stupidity have you come up against when <laughs> you try to <laughs> mention some of this stuff to people even even the mundane stuff which sounds mundane to us but connecting things by like you said by uh, com- completely disparate things to most investigators like Bigfoot and Poltergeist and UFOs and strange phone calls and etc that all happen at the same time you know that th- that's like it's way. It's like anathema to some to a kind of a hidebound ufologist or ghost hunter or
1: right know, or any investigator of the paranormal that has blinders on and, and and wants to totally at at the expense of of his own uh you know maybe act, you know, for his own sanity's sake um, just <laughs> disregard everything else that's surrounding a particular um you know phenomenal events or series of events, and you know, it's like, I'm here to investigate UFOs. I mean, David Perkins uh, comes up with a great story. He went to Missouri back in 76 Uh to investigate a whole um, series of mutilations and UFO sightings, and the UFO investigators were there, and, and they all found out in the same conversation they're standing there, and somebody said, well, you know, it's funny, all this stuff should be happening. I had a Bigfoot, you know, outside of my ranch the other night, and all the UFO investigators just did not want to hear about it. And David is going, wait a minute, you're, yeah. you're kidding me. And and the rest of them just said, oh boy, here we go. They, they didn't even really want to talk about the cattle deaths, uh, the unusual livestock deaths. They, they were there for the uh, UFO activity, and it, he couldn't believe it. He said, how can people go investigate one weird thing and have all these other attendant weird things going on around the, uh, this event, and totally have the blinders on it, and, and you know, just totally not be interested in any of the other attendant activity, it's and for him it was absolutely ridiculous. Maybe they and, think uh, that people you know, it was absurd to him, and I... Uh, and I agree, and I think that that's a real problem in the field of ufology, yeah. or the field of uh, whatever um, specific field of paranormal investigation and research that you might find out there. Yeah, you you have the hardcore believers and 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 investigators in a particular realm totally with blinders on. They don't want to deal with any other attendant. Um, phenomenal events or activity they want to focus on their you know on their stick. and uh, yeah. I, I'm the exact opposite I'm I, when I go to a place I'm asking you know every question that you can think of to try to figure out what's going on and you know I look at weather um, strange societal events as I mentioned earlier just I- anything that 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 may somehow tie into um, you know coincidentally or otherwise synchronistically into <laughs> A particular event or series of events, and I think that's where the the rich nutrients of discovery lie. And right. uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, I guess that's kind of a cutting edge way of looking at it because not many uh, investigators out there really uh, adhere to that.
2: It, it's but the th- the funny thing is that you and uh, other people I have on this show, because of this, it just it seems like common sense to us. Why shut the other stuff out? It's it, I think what's going on there is that. Um, the investigators, for some strange reason, think if they allow this other bit of weirdness into their investigation, they won't be taken seriously, which right. is well. really stupid <laughs> because most people don't take any of these people seriously. Right. Sounds you know, like it's just kind of problem. interesting. They'll
1: get over it eventually.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know what? I got an email here from Walter, my occasional co-host, uh-huh. uh, and he uh, I'll read his email uh, verbatim. Chris, I really like your work. I feel it's some of the most important uh, work out there right now, and, is, and has been. My question: What do you think about Neanderthal man, Neanderthal man, whatever he may actually have been, or is being the answer to Sasquatch? That's one question. Well, yeah, that's uh, well, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I,
1: I, without going into a long, uh, you know, long-winded dissertation about you know the missing link and yeah, and a lot of inconsistencies in the fossil record, and uh, just the very fact that uh, Neanderthal. Um, was the primary, you know, uh, you know, predatory, if you will, species uh, in Europe, for instance, for thousands of years. And then within a 10,000-year within a, a period, I think uh, I'd have to check my, my research and notes on that, but it was a, a fairly quick time frame for back then. Um, you know, they literally disappeared. And, um, you know, I'm not really... I I don't really think that there's a connection between Neanderthal and and, uh, Bigfoot. I I tend to view Bigfoot as more of a psycho-spiritual manifestation, um, similar to UFOs. They do appear. uh, You can smell them. I've actually smelled the Bigfoot, I think. Um, I did have an experience in 79 on Mount Shasta that was one of the more (laughs) memorable experiences of my life. Um, so you do have a nuts-and-bolts element there, just like in UFOs. I mean, yeah. uh, you, you do have a nuts-and-bolts element there, but yet they seem to be able to, uh, you know, apparently um, access maybe some sort of multidimensional capability. Um, they're, you know, here one second, gone the next, uh, morph from one thing into another, be able to, uh, you know, like in in the uh, case of Bigfoot, there's many reports of Bigfoot making uh, interesting whistling um, whistling noises and appearing to transport themselves from one location to another. Um, you know, hence not being able to ever find uh, droppings, really, or, or bones or any sort right. of uh, remains of, of the creature. Um, I, I do think that there is a, some sort of dimensional or um, multi-dimensional um, aspect there. I, I don't think we're dealing with something that is part of the fossil record um, if you look into Native American traditions relating to uh, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, um, and even some Eastern traditions uh, relating to uh, the Yeti and uh, abominable snowmen, for lack of a better term, um, uh-huh. you, you do tend to always run up uh, onto this uh, this you know folklore that does equate them with uh, being able to teleport themselves to to appear one second uh, and disappear the next, and if something um, with even a fair amount of intelligence has that capability, it's not surprising to me that uh, there's never been any real physical remains left behind to study. Now, of course, that's all flies in the face of Jacko, which was the famous case in the 1880s uh, in British Columbia, where they actually oh, yeah. uh, captured a, um, an adolescent Bigfoot and actually had it on a circus sideshow that was uh, a, you know, a train... Um, a train uh, circus that was uh, traveling uh, through Canada and uh, you know I've never seen photographs of, of Jacko but supposedly there are even photographs of Jacko um, and uh, you know the Albert Osman uh, incident is another very interesting uh, case that uh, you know people should should you know research and, and become familiar with um, so I don't really think that there's any real connection uh, genetically I think uh, you know my, my favorite uh, <laughs> My favorite, uh, legend or, um, you know, Native American tradition relating to Bigfoot is the, uh, Taos Pueblo and the, uh, uh, you know, some of the northern, uh, Rio Grande Valley Indian Pueblo traditions of, uh, Bigfoot. And they, they claim that, uh, Bigfoot is Mossaw when he wants to come out into the world of man. He comes out from this big mountain that's on, that straddles the, um, Colorado-New Mexico border there in the San Luis Valley. It's the largest freestanding mountain in North America, San Antonio Peak. And uh, when he wants to come out and do something in the world of man, he takes the form of a big, giant, hairy guy that smells bad. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of uh, traditions uh, relating to Bigfoot, and most of them, if you do your research, you'll find that Bigfoot are often, if not always, associated with regions and uh, areas that have um, subterranean caverns and um, caves and... and Underground, subterranean sort of topography, or whatever that word is for underground, Um, and um, that always has intrigued me. You you tend to find Bigfoot in areas that have um, extensive Extensive. underground
2: caverns. Yeah, that's 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 not enough
1: emphasis has been placed on in Bigfoot.
2: I've never actually heard that one because I I have heard about, uh, uh, especially through the writings of Jim Brandon, about the influence of underground. Opening spaces, caves, even mine shafts uh, being associated with more kind of window areas of paranormal activity. That's also
1: true, yeah. But Bigfoot, um, in terms of the native tradition especially, um, uh, always uh, tend to, you know, the, the sightings, the areas they tend to uh, be seen and, and supposedly inhabit tend to be surrounding uh, cavern systems, uh, areas with cavern systems. in. And in the San Luis Valley, it's um, the same thing. San Antone Mountain is a volcanic peak that has extensive underground um, cavern uh, system. And there was a big uh, series of Bigfoot sightings in the 1870s uh, further north in the valley around the Marble Caves, which are the largest cavern system uh, in, in Colorado, some of the largest on, in North America. And this Bigfoot actually befriended some miners, and they would feed him, and they even named him Boji. <laughs> and uh and he was um, seen in conjunction with uh, the area around the independence gold mine which is extensively riddled with miles and miles of underground uh tunnels and stuff subsequent to the eighteen seventies had been drilled into the uh Sangre de Cristo Mountains there. Mm-hmm. But it's it's always interested me and, and it's something that you don't really see mentioned that often is that Bigfoot tend to be seen in areas that uh, feature underground uh cavern systems or subterranean um, negative spaces in the in, in, you know in the ground
2: yeah you know what 's funny is when you talk about there not being too much uh, physical evidence that 's ever been picked up and it, how that equates with uh, UFOs ghosts etc, it starts to make at least me think about um, the problem we have of trying to describe something because you start describe you t- start talking about dimensions and you me- you 've immediately placed the idea in someone 's head because of our language, that you can take something and cut it up, something like reality, and cut it up into these uh, yeah, various things. It's so <laughs> hard because of the way we're taught and the way we live in our existence to try and think, like you just said a few, about a half an hour ago, that everything is a continuum and everything is one, and it's, you know, when Bigfoot's moving in and out of existence or this UFO is here one second and not the next or the alien comes through my wall or... Something is thrown across the room by a poltergeist. Whatever that that may be going on constantly all the time. It's just that whatever these things are coming from has has the wherewithal to move to uh, uh, either on purpose or by accident, make itself visible and and physical and tangible and able to do things in our perception, and then kind of wink out. Whereas you know, in in another way of thinking about it. It's there all the time and going on all the time, and, and time's a bad word to use. But you can see what I'm getting at.
1: Right. In other words, you're, what you're describing is um, the byproduct of possibly some sort of understanding of a technology that we can't quite comprehend with our you know, modern uh, re- relativity-based physics. And, of course, author C. Clarke had the great quote that any technology that you know, is, is beyond ours would appear to be magic to us. And, you know what? Uh, Go ahead. And and that you know that brings that whole you know uh, way of of looking at this uh, into I think clearer focus uh, for folks that are interested in this stuff. Um, we we really uh, owe it to ourselves to be as open minded and as um, as meticulously um, geared as possible towards uh, real documentation of these events. Mm-hmm. I have always felt. Um, since I was a little kid, really, but especially you know from the early 90s on when I became you
3: know a, a
1: fairly recognized investigator and researcher, I've always felt that there was an interconnectedness between um, many, if not all of the events time concurrent that I was I was investigating. and um, uh, yeah. this is just an absolute blind spot I, I feel in in the, you know the field of paranormal investigation. I think people need to really, you know, get out of themselves, get out of the box, tear your blinders off, and really start looking at stuff um, in a new and fresh manner. And you know, if if I can accomplish anything by this radio interview or my books or any of my television appearances or 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 conference, uh, you know, speaking engagements, the one thing that I would like to accomplish and, and instill and in possibly inspire in people is an open-mindedness and a In a a fresh, you know, manner of of thinking or a fresh approach, uh, you know, to contemplating this stuff. It's really important. We've been spinning our wheels for, you know, since time immemorial about this stuff. We've created religions, we've created folklore, urban legends, all these things. But why not bring the powers of, you know, diagnostic science to bear on this stuff? Why not really start to be documentarians and really... You know, not approach this subject matter with blinders on, and then prejudge um, these phenomenal events. Don't go go into it already thinking that you know what the answer is. When I started out in '92, I felt all these UFOs were you know aliens from another planet, and very quickly um, and early on, I realized that 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 convenient knee jerk um, you know a- assumption that I was making was. Highly inadequate and totally um, anthema to what, what I was really dealing with. And right. if I can instill anything in people, listeners out there, readers, whatever, it's to really keep an open mind and, and get outside of yourself, get outside of the box.
2: Well, you know that's a tough one. You see, because now you say open-minded, somebody will say, "Okay, well, you know, tell me what." what you think it is and uh, what's been going on and I'll try and keep an open mind but the the funny thing is no matter how open-minded you are you're still trapped in language you're still trapped right. in learning yeah. and you're okay. still trapped in categories yeah yeah that's so true. as the things come in from what you're saying it's automatically being dropped into boxes already
1: Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, we are handicapped and handcuffed by that. Uh, I'm not
2: excluding you and I or or anyone. No, no, you're absolutely right in that, and it's it's
1: it's a real struggle to find a way to effectively be open-minded, not um, delineate, not um, you know um, define things in a way um, that pigeonholes whatever it is into a specific category or box. Uh, it's very difficult to do, and and you know I'm I will always struggle with that, uh, <laughs> and you know it's very difficult to bring these very you know almost metaphysical um, uh, insights, you know I'd like to think they are at least uh, into the subject matter, and still do it in the frame of reference that is all encapsulated in boxes, as you point yeah. out. Uh, it's it's not easy, and uh, you know hopefully um, myself and others out there who are. You know, slogging away in the trenches uh, are you know taking three steps forward and you know being pushed two steps back. But we're we're we are moving forward, and that's why the whole area of haunted sites, um, which I've been you know involved with here for the last eight or nine months, uh, has really uh, kind of progressed my thinking, um, has inspired me, and really um, tweaked my um, (laughs) metaphysical sensibilities, if you will. And and I'm real excited about some of the work that's being done um, with uh, portal areas and haunted sites. And uh, that's an area I know you wanted to talk about tonight.
2: Yeah, well, we're almost at the top of the hour. Um, Let me give you the, and we'll get into that in the next hour, because you know what, this list of questions, I think I got through three of them. Uh-oh, the first okay, hour by the way, just tell me to shut up when... no 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 no, you, you <laughs> tell know, me
1: but... to answer them you know, in, in one sentence or less, Chris, what do you think
2: yeah well there 's one thing I thought of when you were talking about uh, Arthur C. Clark. Uh-huh. I read a page uh, on the web about uh, Clark and his attitude toward UFOs and paranormal and all that. But the one thing he he said, whether you agree with him or not, which is a quote I loved, was something like, when too many answers are given, it often means the wrong question is being asked.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's like a reverse Occam's razor.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other question that Walter asked was, uh, could you talk about the mountain man who hunted down the, I, I, I think I remember this, these brothers in the 1800s? Your book alluded to, in my mind, to strange things he witnessed but did not talk much about. Is that the guy that went looking for those two outlaws, the Mexican guys? Um, you know, I'm not sure. That's kind of a, a, a pretty general question.
1: Um, you yeah. know, I did uh, research on quite a number of mountain men. Um, you know, again, there were, there were mountain men that, you know, I even met um, one or two treasure hunters, for instance, that, that had incredible maps and, and, you know, this this rich tapestry of, Historical documentation that they, you know, for years and years had accumulated, um, and again, uh, you know, it, it depends which mountain man. I mean, you have, uh, you know, uh, Kit Carson, of course, was a famous mountain man. There, uh, one of my favorites was uh, uh, the diminutive guy that hunted down the, America's first serial killers. Um, you know, who was also a, a very enigmatic. Uh, the guy that
2: went looking for Albert Packer well no
1: he uh, went looking for Felipe Espinosa oh that's right that's right and and his uh, cousin um, uh, his name was Tom Tobin but um, uh, his gun was taller than he was he was like 4'11 and he had this (laughs) really long rifle there's a picture in one of my books of him and uh, he ended up cutting off the heads of uh, the three Espinosa's and lost two of them uh, when he was whoa big shooting star oh my goodness I'm outside um (laughs) <laughs> and he lost two of the heads he had them in burlap bags and he was uh, crossing the Werfno River and um, you know it was, it was in springtime and, and then it, it, it flooded and he lost two of the heads and uh but he was able to deliver the head of Felipe Espinosa to the governor of the, uh, the territory of Colorado and um and then they they reneged on his uh, reward he was supposed to get 500 bucks and uh yeah. so they, they bought him a jacket <laughs> <laughs> and uh Philippe Espinosa's head ended up on a sideshow in a circus and was uh, displayed for many years uh, before it disappeared. <laughs> Somebody probably let the formaldehyde out or something. And uh, So I, I'm really not sure. I, I can't really comment on that particular question. Um, again, uh, I do have another guy that, um, you know, in the 80s um, was a miner and um, he did, uh, he had quite a number of experiences on Blanca, Blanca Peak, which, you uh, to some of the people that maybe have read my book, you'll remember it's the Sacred Mountain of the East to the um, you know Pueblo Indians and a place where all thought emerges or uh, all thought originates Assistant uh, Ginny is the Navajo term, the Dene term for it.
3: Uh-huh.
1: And um, he, um, he befriended some miners that would wait for fireballs that would dance down the mountain and wherever they would hit the ground and start a little fire, um, his friend would go and sweep it off in the morning and find these like sand dollar-sized disks of gold, which uh, Pat, the guy that told me this, actually saw uh, examples of these um, golden disks. And the guy that found them ended up uh, becoming quite wealthy and bought a huge spread in Missouri um, that was handed down in in, in his family. So, uh, you know, again, (laughs) mountain men in Colorado, I mean, (laughs) I don't want to say they're a dime a dozen, but, you know, I need a little bit more to go on than that.
2: Okay, well, maybe Walter can look it up and uh, email us back. I guess we'll take a slight break now, and I'll uh, play some music, uh, restart the record here so we get the second hour, and we'll be back talking about um, what uh, Chris is working on now, which has more to do with um, hauntings and paranormal investigation, which completely hooks in with what he was doing before, and we'll explore that when we get right back. Uh, meanwhile, I don't know if Chris could be able to hear this, but it's a song called Abominable Snow Creature. <laughs> Here we go. It's Radio Mysterioso. So, way up high
4: in the wind and cold of the Himalayan snows, there's a creature there I can't forget no matter where I go. I was a mountain climber many years ago, and there wasn't a place I wouldn't go. But when I saw that strange creature in the snow, It made my blood run cold. Abominable snow creature Hiding in the snow Abominable snow creature You'll haunt me It stood upright like a giant man and it had a long white mane. It had red eyes and pointed ears and great long sharp fangs. I was heading up towards a mountain peak when I saw it coming my way. I grabbed a rope and I started to go then I felt that mountain sway. He hit me hard with a fist of steel and I went a rolling in the snow and I didn't stop till I hit a rock. 1,000 feet below. Abominable snow creature, hiding in the snow. Abominable snow creature, you'll haunt me. Now I'll never climb another mountain And I'm gonna watch where I go Cause I'll never know when I'm gonna meet That strange creature of the snow Away up high on a windy ridge Where a mountain goat wouldn't go I saw that strange creature in the snow That strange creature in the snow Abominable snow creature Hiding in the snow, abominable snow creature, you'll haunt
2: me wherever I go. Oh no, abominable snow, blah, 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 snow creature. Who is that? Martin Wallace or Marlon Wallace. Hmm. Sounds like Elvis singing about Bigfoot. Oh, Chris, you still there? Still there, Chris? Hello? Still there, Chris? Oh, sounds like our battery died. Wait just a sec. You hear me, Chris? Hello? Chris? We cut off, Chris! Oh, well, let me call him back on the cell. Here, we'll have to to listen to uh, poor left winger and something else I have no idea. We'll be right back. Think we got Chris back here. Are You there, Chris? Yep. Let me see. That mic on. Let me turn up the volume on this. There. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, okay. Let's. I hear you great. Okay. I'm just trying to get the uh, mic. See, we're do- this second part of the interview, we're doing by holding a microphone up to the speaker of a cell phone. Isn't that great? But we can still hear Chris, and we can still hear me, and that's great. Yep. Uh, oh, so what we were going to do was uh, find out what you were investigating now, how it kind of uh, related, it hooked, hooked up to um, uh, how it was similar to the stuff you were doing before and maybe the reasons why... Um, you're doing paranormal kind of ghost hunting investigations now.
1: Well, uh, <laughs> the short answer to that is um, I'm working for a, uh, a video studio, the only high-definition uh, full-service video studio in uh, northern Arizona. And the owner of the studio, the producer, our, our Ronald Buskey, uh, became very intrigued. Uh, he read both my books and... and became you know, has always had an interest in, in paranormal subjects, but really wanted to uh you know, take it to the next level in his own business and and start coming up with some ideas uh uh for shows, for television shows and, and to cover uh paranormal subjects. And he um he knew a psychic, um a very talented psychic, uh north of Toronto, uh in Canada
3: uh-huh. who
1: um Worked on murder investigations for uh, law enforcement. and had quite a, a uh, an impressive track record, actually. And uh, mentioned to him that he was interested in maybe doing something involved with um, haunted uh, sites. And uh, Ron is um, actually a horror um, fiction writer and uh, has won a Bram Stoker Award and, and uh, has really been interested in horror films. And of course naturally he would be interested in in goats and uh in haunted uh sites and in that sort of subject matter so she and i developed a um, an idea to uh produce a, a documentary uh following uh this psychic and uh, some uh members from the Indiana Ghost Trackers uh uh organization to some haunted sites in Illinois and Indiana and so we uh put together a proposal and we went ahead and Went out there and spent a week at three haunted sites uh, back uh, this spring in in April, um, uh, including the uh, Mantino State Asylum, which uh, was closed in the late eighties. It was a huge twelve hundred acre facility with fifty five buildings. They housed uh, was only supposed to house about seven thousand patients, but at at its heyday, I mean, they were up almost almost to nine thousand people crammed into this place. Uh-huh. and it had the dubious distinction of being one of the uh first of the large sort of mental health industrial um factories for mental health uh treatment back in the uh, 20s and 30s and um it's where they developed electroshock therapy, convulsive shock therapy, it's where they first uh did lobotomies in the 40s, it's where they first um tested thorazine and um you know reading this background material before I went out there, I'm thinking to myself, what the heck do I want to go to this place for, you know? It really sounds uh, horrific, and uh, at its um, height, it had 55 huge buildings that housed all these people, and they slowly, since 86, been tearing it down, and they were, they're down to about the last five buildings, and uh, of course, it's all, you know, all the windows are busted in, there's, you know, debris everywhere, and it's, you know, really... Um, for lack of a better word it's quite spooky and um, we went out there um, with four members of the Indiana Ghost Trackers, Robbie Thomas uh, the psychic and uh, Ron and I with uh, two high definition cameras and, uh, and we, we went through this place and did a complete uh, uh, paranormal investigation with all kinds of uh, wonderful instrumentation, gas meters tri field meters uh you know humidity uh sensors and 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 temperature you know laser temperature gauges and various types of uh recording equipment um you know other than our uh video obviously um uh, and we we did quite a number of electronic voice phenomenon or e v p sessions which um uh, you know of course at the time we didn't know if we were getting anything we were just going through this really spooky place and i I do consider myself to be probably a little bit more sensitive than the the average person because I, I've been immersed in this subject matter for so long. I've been able to identify, you know, certain feelings, certain energies, if you will, and sensitivities to these energies. And, and I'll tell you, I walked into this place and it was like walking into, uh, the only way I can describe it is there was this dull, powerful but very very faint roar of voices when you walked into this uh, uh these buildings and of course we went in about 10 o'clock at night yes and, of course uh, <laughs> we snuck in of course i'm probably not supposed to say that but you know we were trusted oh we i sneaked in
2: into all kinds of places like that working on this weird california book
1: yeah exactly well then you know the uh know the animal um so we walked in and, and we did quite a number of EVP sessions i had one uh Instance where I was filming uh standing in the doorway of one of the hydrotherapy rooms, pointing the camera into the room, and in the complete darkness, I heard in, in the dark, I heard these footsteps me and, and my my sound guy uh... you know the guy that was helping me with the gear, we heard of some somebody walking down this this huge dark room right at us, and we're thinking uh the other people, you know, the other group, we had divided into two groups at this point. Right. And uh, we figured they were sneaking up on us just to freak us out and scare us and stuff. So I didn't pay any attention until it got within maybe 20, 25 feet of us and then stopped. And I said, wait a minute, you guys, hold on. And I, I turned my my camera looking down know, about 10 feet of hallway into this huge building. And, you know, I had this 1,000-watt, you know, well, actually 500-watt light and camera light. And there was nothing there. And so I, we went out there and we looked all around and we didn't see anything and we did an EVP session and we got this incredible EVP uh answering questions that we were asking directly uh um fairly clear and and uh you know like I might have mentioned at the top of the interview I when I first moved to uh Colorado I lived in a haunted house for 2 years and I had some some really riveting experiences um which changed my thinking. I always thought ghosts were, you know, hokey and, you know, Hollywood, and, yeah, ghosts, yeah, right, and, you know, I, I just never really gave it much thought, um, and as, a, as an investigator, of course, I was aware of some pretty amazing haunted sites in the San Luis Valley, one of which I wrote in, uh, about in my book, um, The House on River Road uh, in Alamosa, with where every owner of the house killed himself, and some of them killed their families uh, over the about a 40 50 year period Um real compelling place so i I've, I've always kind of had an interest but until i really started getting into these subjects uh, i didn't really take it you know very seriously and uh yeah it was quite interesting we um then we went to another um site which was um Al Capone's country house um in Illinois uh, oh yes bit, you mentioned uh, Illinois this and uh tons of, you know i think 11 or 12 maybe 13 people died in this place uh, mostly um, you know stabbings, shootings um, the hell's angels uh, it was a biker bar in the 70s and two people died in the attic and and uh it was notoriously haunted and we had uh, quite a time uh you know going to this place um, after hours uh, doing evp and, um, one of the things that really, uh, surprised me, or actually didn't surprise me when I really think about it, uh, most of the EVP that we got at the, uh, the biker hangout now at Capone's place were all curse words, you know, telling us, you know, F you and, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're this, you're that.
2: <laughs> you can swear on this show. It's not, uh, it's an, it's an, it's not prohibited.
1: Well, it, it, you anyway. Know, we were hoping to do this as a pilot for a TV show, and it's, it's pretty ironic <laughs> that, uh, the only evidence you get for your EVP you is the beep out. that you can't use on the air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we thought that was kind of funny. But the one thing that really blew my mind, and, and this, you know, uh, I mean, I think the project uh, will um, become actually famous for uh, a couple of things. First of all, we were able to get film footage of the sessions where we did the EVP so that when you look at the uh, DVD that we have that we, we've just released... Um, you're, you're able to see the video of the EVP session and then hear the EVP overlaid on top with the very, you know, with the um, the audio recorders that picked it up. So uh-huh. I, I, all these ghost shows that you see on TV now, it's got their dime's dozen. Um, none of them have EVP. It's always like, well, we got this EVP last night. Here it is, and then you listen to it, but you don't see the actual context from which the EVP was was gained. And uh... so all our EVP. Fortunately, we had cameras rolling, so we are able to show you the exact session, the exact part of the session where the EVP recordings are, are actually um, gathered.
3: Uh-huh. And
1: But the main thing that really blows my mind, and this is, this is quite exciting um, uh, for me as a paranormal investigator, is uh, when we went into Rico D's, which is a restaurant, um, which is uh, now the, um, you know, they've taken over the uh, facility, the house, where Al Capone's um, um, hangout used to be. They had a it's three floors. Um, the first floor is a restaurant now. The second floor is all offices, and they keep it pretty uh, clear. And then uh, the third floor is an attic. But back in the day, on um, the second floor used to be a bordello. And um, and we um, we were told um, when we got in there that, you know, don't go up into the attic. Um, nobody's allowed up there because that's where most of the real nasty type of um, apparitions ab- and stuff uh, seem to be lurking. And uh, so we... Uh, <laughs> You know, we started interviewing the owner, and, of course, what what the first thing that two of the members of the team did is they snuck up into the attic, and they had a RCA uh, digital recorder, which they put in to record, and they placed it on a uh, small table upstairs in the empty attic. You know, there's some stuff. He stored stuff up there, but, it you know, by and large, it was empty, uh-huh. and then dashed downstairs. This was within five minutes of arriving there, and then uh, an hour and 40 minutes later, um, all of us uh, were standing in the room, and it was like a lull in the conversation. nobody was talking, nobody was moving and out of the clear blue, very distinct, very loud, we heard this voice say, "F you," and uh everybody looked at each other going, "Whoa i've <laughs> I've seen a lot, done a lot, been there, you know helped design the t-shirt factory uh I mean I mean I got major goosebumps, and I normally don't you know respond physiologically like that um, and uh, as we're all talking about this all excited going wow you know you know, obviously everybody heard it but we're all trying to yeah. figure out where it came from you know what it could be uh, unfortunately I was changing uh, tapes right when that happened so I wasn't filming uh, we didn't get it on uh, the recording but
2: of course as, that's when it happens
1: yeah oh definitely I mean oh, there were five of uh, us standing there and uh, there's no question that it happened it was uh, one of the more uh, amazing paranormal events uh, that i've experienced uh, in all the years that I've been uh, out there you know in the field and uh, as we're we're talking about this at one point the owner goes that was something else wow and uh, we we got insane that on film and, and of course you know at the time it didn't you know it didn't make you know it wasn't a big deal it was just you know uh, five words and a whole litany of uh you know excited conversation and then when we were editing the piece and putting it together, we got the uh, recording that was taken up uh, in the attic um, right when we got there, again, within five minutes of arriving the place. And, and the EVP, as clear as bell, goes, that was something else. Wow. And it even sounds like the owner. I mean, it was like somebody... Uh, like a, a comedian uh, pretending like he's somebody like Rich Little used to do Jimmy Stewart or or you know right. a, a comedian Nixon or whatever uh, you know pretends like he's uh, doing somebody impersonations else's voice. yeah it was it was like a voice pretending to be the owner and when you listen to it very closely you can tell that the inflection is wrong the pitch is a little off but it sounds really close and then when we were editing we got Ron noticed. The owner saying the exact same thing, and we realized, holy moly. And we took the EVP that happened an hour and 40 minutes before the owner said it, and then we took the owner, the recording of the owner, we put them side by side, and they're almost a match. You can tell they're slightly different. But the inflection, the wording, um, the emotion, the pitch, everything is almost exact. Now, what's wrong with this picture?
2: Yeah, what, what... What kind of ideas does this bring up? Does it well, mean that there's man, some cosmic it just totally cosmic ri-
1: anyway, and it gets my mind going in all kinds of directions? Um,
2: cosmic rich all, little or um, time there's a, dilation? There's an obvious
1: time dilation going on. Is yeah. some sort of time based element here, uh, uh, precluding any sort of hoaxing? Um, there was nobody up in the attic. We had the owner on camera downstairs when the recording, the, the initial recording was was uh, was gathered. And the owner was in the room with us, and he said it in a context that was totally offhand, off the cuff. Uh, he never said anything, you know, even similar to that the whole other time we were, we were on camera with him. And so it, it, it's obviously um, the, the two aren't connected in terms of the owner somehow going upstairs and whispering, and that was something else, wow, into the tape deck, because I was, I was filming the guy. When, it, when the original recording occurred. So, right. what does that tell me? That tells me that there's some sort of time element involved. At Mantino, at the state hospital, we have Robbie, the psychic, going, trying, he's he's picking up the name of a particular individual who he thought he may have been in communication with, and he's trying to figure out her name. He's going Linda, Linda Tom, Thomas, Linda Thomas, Linda Thomas, and then the EVP recording corrects him and, and, and says her name. He, he, he's, you know, at first he thought Lydia, uh, L- L- Lida, and the voice goes Linda. A split second before he goes Linda. So there's another example of the EVP phenomenon occurring you know, time-wise in front of the actual um, words being spoken by a human. So, um, it, it, to me, it's very exciting. Um, I've never heard of this before. Um, all these ghost shows that are out there and I've seen a few of them just to see, you know, what other people are up to and, yeah. the, you know, the state of their investigative, uh, savvy. And I've never encountered this particular, um, aspect of, um, you know, ghost investigation, if you will, or, or electronic voice phenomenon, um, investigative work. And it uh, to me, it's very exciting. And it, opens up all kinds of potential doorways, I think, for, um, you know, potential uh, approaches for, um, you know, doing further investigations in this realm, setting up uh, experiments, trying to elicit uh, answers to questions before you even ask them, that sort of thing. And uh, it's real exciting, uh, I think. And and we're we're, uh, developing an idea which uh, we're going to call Paranormal Lab and um, we're well, working with the Indiana Ghost Trackers, and one of their, um, you know, technical uh, whiz kids was a um, Army psyops acoustic uh, expert who uh, actually did uh, psyops work in the first Desert Storm. I don't know if that's <laughs> that's a good thing or not. Uh, but uh, anyway, Wait, really, he's, what did uh, he do? Uh, brilliant. He really has uh, a technical uh, a knowledge. Did uh, say
2: again? What, what did this guy do in Desert Storm With you know, did, was he involved with playing strange things over uh, loudspeakers or yeah, exactly,
1: uh, subliminals um, all kinds of stuff, he didn't really go into much detail, I don't think he was uh, really allowed to but
3: oh.
1: boy when you see the uh, you know, see his computer, see the software he's helped develop, see some of the uh, exotic recording uh, equipment that he's developing right now um, and you know, his um, understanding and knowledge of the history of EVP. Most people don't know the electronic voice phenomenon goes all the way back to um, the turn of the century. The first real celebrated EVP that was recorded was actually recorded in the Altai um, by a team uh, with one of the early um, Edison wax cylinder uh, recording discs. You know, recording, uh, it was uh, the precursor to the recording. Uh, recording tape, or even uh, the record player, they would record onto these wax cylinders back in 1908, I think, um, the uh, Jessup uh, uh, expedition, and they were recording the rites and uh, rituals of Altai shaman, and they got clear as bell EVPs that they could not um, um, debunk, and uh, Michael is is quite an expert on this, in fact, he is working with... uh, somebody with the Smithsonian to digitize these, uh, these first EVP recordings, he's really a, a, a you know, he's, he's a real, um, you know, top-shelf expert in, in the whole realm. And uh, anyway, this whole idea we have is par- it's called Paranormal Labs. And what we're going to do is we're going to develop some new technologies that we can take to haunted sites um, with phase strobe uh, light arrays uh, for video and uh, exotic noise generation uh, equipment. Um, uh, chromium noise, bluey noise, browny noise, um, there's various types of noise generation equipment that, that you can use in conjunction with, uh, recording devices to, uh, to hopefully create a, uh, the most conducive sonic environment to record these, uh, disembodied, uh, thought forms or whatever you want to call them, spirits. Uh, we're also, um, I'm developing and doing some research on, uh, electrostatically charging rooms where supposed disincarnate, uh, thought forms or entities um, are said to predominantly exist in a particular, you know, location-specific area in a room or whatever, and we're going to go in and, and use some exotic um, uh, electrostatic um, in ion generation, negative ion generation. We're going to do a whole litany of, of experiments to figure out what is the most conducive um, environment that you can help create to gain, um, you know, real uh, bona fide visual and audio evidence. Um, It creates conditions so that these disembodied spirits don't have to pee back on top of ambient noise, which is basically what EVP is. I mean, we're talking about um, creating sounds and and words out of uh, birds in the trees outside, people whispering inside, um, footsteps, um, furniture moving. They piggyback. They take and mold ambient noise and create uh, words with with um, ambient noise. And what we want to do is make it easier for whatever energies or you know seemingly intelligent energies that are doing this create environments where they don't have to wait for the proper ambient noise to create a sound, uh, create words rather, in statements. Um, so I'm real excited about this, and. and once we get through the development phase, we're going to uh create a commercial uh business which will be um you know dispatched to areas um with a budget to um go in and get um and you know get physical evidence um audio and, and vi- <coughs> excuse me visual evidence and then also um be an analytical uh company that that you can send your evidence to and have uh you know the best in the field um analyzed evidence is submitted to uh the Paranormal Lab. So we're we're real excited about this. We've actually uh we're we've uh, we're negotiating a space uh in Illinois um you know as a kind of a headquarters and where we're gonna put all the all the gear and uh it's it's real exciting and we've actually interested uh a couple of uh major T V uh channels uh in the, the whole concept and just for anybody who's interested in all this, uh, stuff I've been talking about, go to Dead Whisper, one word, deadwhisper.com, and, um there's some examples of EVPs and some of the video that we took, and also if you go to YouTube and, uh, do a search for Dead Whisper, uh, comma, EVP, electronic voice phenomenon, um, there's three examples of, uh, some of the evidence that we gained, uh, at Mancino. And, um we're real excited about the project. Um, we feel it's, a, it's a, a major step forward in the the whole emerging field of uh, haunted site investigation. There's a real upsurge of interest right now in the uh, public uh, for haunted sites. I mean, God, there's got to be at least a half a dozen, seven, eight uh, TV shows now that that feature this type of investigative work. But unfortunately, all of them are real slick and. You know, you have a lot of interpersonal drama on the team, but very little evidence, <laughs> you know, being presented. Right. We're, our project is, um scientific paranormal reality programming. We don't add any, uh, slick, uh, editing or, you know, what you feel like we did when you go through there because we present you exactly what it was like to go through these places. And then at the end, we, Rewind to the sections where we got the EVP, and you're able to see the exact instant where we we picked up these disembodied uh, or or thought forms or whatever you want to call them these these apparently uh, seemingly uh, intelligence uh, based uh, entities, but whatever you want to call them, uh, communicating. And uh, you know, I went into it a little bit jaded, and uh, you know, going, yeah, right, haunted houses, uh uh-huh, Yeah, well, I'm just a cameraman, right? I'm telling you, at the end of this whole process, uh, I am really convinced this is a major shortcut uh, for paranormal investigators to go directly into um, environments and if properly equipped and properly trained, uh, we may be able to jumpstart the whole realm of paranormal investigations uh, with some of these, these very interesting haunted sites. There's a place in Kansas where one of the investigators uh, as he's on camera, you see him being scratched with five fingernail claw marks that raise blood on his arm, right on camera. And uh, that's kind of hard to fake. Uh, I'm sure it can be done, but uh, knowing the people who actually documented this, and, and knowing, you know, having a sense of the veracity of the of in- integrity of the investigators, I mean, there's Definitely something to it, and I really think that it's been long neglected by mainstream paranormal investigation. And I'm real excited to uh, be involved in a, you know, in a project like this, especially with the, you know, the advent of new technologies and coming up with ways to possibly make it easier for these um, thought forms to communicate. I'm, what do you think of all that, Greg? You
2: haven't interrupted yet. Well, I haven't interrupted you because. Am I
1: still online? <laughs> yes, can you hear me? I've been, I've been riffing for about 15 minutes here, so I figured I'd better take a breath and. Let that's you funny. Get a word well, in. That, that's okay. I do I the just same thing. There's a lot out
2: there. Us- usually, radio hosts will cut me off before I'm finished with a thought, which is why I don't yeah, usually I, I, do.
1: I appreciate that. Well, you know, I, I could go on and on, but I, I well, just wanted the, to kind of get a sense of where what you're thinking was about. Well, that. I,
2: the the reason that I thought, wow, it's time to have Chris on again, was our conversation about a week ago, two weeks ago actually because last week we couldn't make it. Um, we were kind of working our way through these stories and you mentioned the story about the guy uh, the guy, the owner of the building there in, where was it? What state was that in?
1: Uh, it, well, it was in Willowbrook, Illinois. Uh, okay.
2: South of Chicago. And the fact that something sounding like his voice saying exactly what he said happened an hour and what twenty minutes before he yeah, said forty it.
1: minutes before yeah
2: yeah and the, the what you were saying was that you took it a step further than you've actually been describing here and said that um, what was it that you said you 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 said that you were using these technologies to try and get these voices or whatever they were manifestations to uh, show themselves in a way that we could we could see without just blindly stumbling into it but you right. also mentioned that that um sometimes and not just you but you said somebody else had found this out that you could pick up conversations what people said and maybe through some of your technology even see what people were doing um hours days years before you got there because that's still there and when well, I when I heard
1: know, that, I, um, I was mentioning that I've I've done some, you know, I've done quite a bit of research on the state of technology that the uh, intelligence services and and you know the government military whatever, um, reportedly or you know it's rumored that they have uh, certain capabilities. And one thing that I have heard uh, more than once is that there is equipment supposedly available that you can take this uh, recording equipment, go into a room, and and dial in a date and record conversations that were still residual to the environment uh, days, hours, weeks later. Yeah, Um, and I said that sounds sounds like... It sounds a little bit far-fetched to the average person, but when you start to really uh, do your research and realize that all environments sound, you know, it may disappear to the human ear, but there is a residual element. You can't, you know, the energy can't be created, it's destroyed, only altered. And if you have sensitive sensitive enough equipment and some form of dialability, in other words, if you can dial it into a specific, um, you know, time frame, linear time frame, then theoretically, um, it stands to reason that you would be able to then uh, record conversations that have long passed, uh, faded away to, you know, to the human uh, auditory uh, nerves. and. You know, I I I heard it once, and I thought, yeah, right, why don't you write a sci-fi book? That sounds great, man. That sounds like a great, you know, tool for, like, Star Trek or something. But then I heard it again. Then I heard it again. So maybe there's something to that. Maybe technology, you know, uh, black-budget technology has already gotten to a point where they've been able to zero in on Particular environments, and I'm sure some environments are more conducive for this than others. If there's a lot of natural um, uh, materials like wood, um, tile, um, certain uh, building materials, for instance, uh, tend to um, absorb or retain um, sonic frequencies better than others. Um, like if you go into a glass room, it's going to be a lot harder to. Um, uh, you know, to pick up something coherent because it, it it really can't sink into glasses as well as it can to drywall or wood or um, fabric curtains that sort of thing. So, you know, I have done a little bit of research on you know the actual uh, mechanics of of you know auditory frequencies, and and there does seem to be, um, you know, some potential for that sort of technology to be developed. And you know, who am I? I don't know uh, you know what our government or what you know. You know, the state of the art is in this realm. Obviously, they don't publish, uh, this sort of stuff in, in readily accessed, uh, journals or whatever. Papers, uh, aren't published on this stuff, but it, it, you know, with, with the amount of research, just the small amount of research that I've done, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if that sort of technology existed. Um, hell, they can read a, you know, they can hear your conversation, um, just bouncing a laser off your window. Yeah. Um, if they wanted to. I mean, some people say they even have the technology to do that from space where they can beam a auditory um, a, a laser down that would be able to pick up auditory vibrations off of uh, of glass and and uh, be able to hear conversations from space. So, what's to say that we don't have some sort of time-based um, technology? And uh, the example that I gave of the EVP that we got um, would tend to, you know, sort of point me in the direction that this is uh, highly possible.
2: Yeah, well, the, the funny thing is, when you first mentioned it, you didn't mention the, when we were talking about it, the uh, physical basis of this. What I was thinking is that there was some sort of way to hack in, as it were, to um, uh, escape the time I mean, it's hard to put into words. Escape the the time component of it, and not have to actually rely on a, a residual physical manifestation of audio. And I said sort it sounds like, like a time machine. It one
1: step further in guessing, uh, uh, you know, as to the kind of uh, uh, basis that this this type of technology would possibly be springing from, um, because auditory vibrations don't totally disappear. There is a residual amount of Uh air. And so, you know, if you're walking into a a bathhouse that was built in in Roman times, you're going to have, you know, sound vibrations uh, bouncing around on some realms that uh, go back, you know, hundreds and hundreds and, you know, possibly a thousand years. So, you know, I I I really don't know what sort of technology would be able to to do this, but, you know, I think that there is... um, I think time, in in terms of of, of using technology um, to to the degree that it may have been developed, um, I think time may become more malleable than than we you know in our everyday lives than that we would think. So uh-huh. um, that that was kind of what I was referring to before. But speaking with Michael um, Espinoza, who's the uh, audio expert uh, with the Indiana Ghost Trackers, um, you know he's he's. Kind of been riffing a little bit with me and and trying to explain, you know, the actual science that could that could uh, you know be brought to bear in this uh, particular uh, you know equation. And I'm I'm really intrigued by it. You know, hearing that EVP recording, that's mimicking the voice of somebody saying something an hour and forty minutes later, just opens up all kinds of uh, interesting.
2: <laughs> yeah, know, because that's possibility. A, yeah, how could that be a residual that happened before?
1: Exactly. So, um, you you know, if it it, it can happen that way, why can't it happen the other way?
2: Exactly. So So what I was saying is that what you were talking about essentially was a time machine, not that you could get into and go to another time, but kind of listen in on it and according to what you're doing possibly maybe even look at it.
1: Yeah. um, Again, well, you know, I really feel, and and this is kind of my little um, contribution to the uh, potential technological um, side of this whole developmental process and that is using um you know harmonically phased um strobe light arrays and, and maybe bombarding rooms with x rays or, or um electrostatically charging them or creating plasma fields in rooms and then using uh phased arrays um phased strobe arrays. Um I, I'm looking at it, I'd love to speak to see this stuff. It's one thing to get a recording of something and right. you know it's always equivocal but boy, I'll tell you get something on video. <laughs> You
2: know, yeah, exactly. You know, it might not even thing, be something you can see while you're there. Yeah, exactly. Like the EVP. Uh, you know what? Another thing it brings to mind, Chris, and uh, to uh, shoot it in a slightly different direction, but uh, basically the same thing, is that um, what uh, techniques that shamans used to use, which and and it still use people gazing into crystal balls, but they would send up smoke, right? And they would think that you know, the, the, and maybe it happened. That
1: they well, could. The Maya were uh, famous for uh, being able. Having to, a medium. Uh, they would um, pierce themselves. The royalty would pierce themselves. The royal blood would go into a, a special bowl, that was filled with copal tree bark. Um, the blood would soak the bark. They would light the blood on fire, and as the royal was going into trance, they would light it, and out the smoke would form, an ancestor spirit and uh archaeologists you know always thought that this was some sort of allegoric thing they didn't take it literally until at one site on the uh, East cemento river they they found this very famous um, um, uh, glyph that that talks that that shows that pictures uh, a very famous uh, ancestor spirit uh ritual that was done, even though the exact date of it i think it was like march twenty eighth six eighty a d
3: uh-huh.
1: and out of the bowl is a very stylized serpent coming out with a human head. And they thought, wow, this is all just, you know, some artistic representation. But then they started excavating the walls that surrounded the inner courtyard where the ritual occurred. Obviously, it was only open, you know, the people inside that witnessed the ceremony were the priests and the royals. Yeah. And everybody else is outside. And um, They found
2: they, smoke remnants on the walls that had exactly they found graffiti by onlookers
1: who were spying in on the ritual they found the exact serpent face um as graffiti on the on the outside of the walls and they still have yet to uh, reconcile the uh, implications of that so uh you know there there's obviously so much more um to reality than uh you know the further along we go as the technological race the further separate we are from uh from you know possible um, ancient knowledge in, in this area, and that's always been a, an area of research that I've been most fascinated with is the extent of you know antediluvian possibly uh, knowledge yeah. and technology, and you know how how did they you know create those stone walls uh, in Cusco, or how did they get the Temple of the Sun uh, you know built at uh, Tiwanaka? and yeah. you know it, it just you know we we still to this day can't move the obelisks uh, that, you know, hundreds of feet tall o- obelisks that the Egyptians were able to uh, effortlessly uh, erect. And, uh, you know, it. we still can't duplicate the uh, the building techniques at Baalbek in Lebanon. And, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, obviously the ancients did have some sort of knowledge about um, a, a form of technology that we have lost. And uh, I think these types of investigative um, efforts, uh, you know, that I've been describing may hopefully uh, start bringing us back to, uh, to ancient knowledge. Uh, you know, I don't want to sound too...
2: Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, too, we're uh, coming around from, from our point of view, from our Aristotelian and our 19th century and our relativi- relativistic point of view, using that avenue to kind of point the way to what people knew, who knows way back when. And just finding yeah. it out in a different way. It was probably just as laborious for them to find it out over millennia as well.
1: Right. And, um, but again, time, you know, back then, a day was, uh, you know, <laughs> a day was a lot, had a lot more uh, time in it than, than time, uh, you know, a day does today. I mean, time is becoming incredibly compressed. And, uh, Robert Anton Wilson in College McTrigger, uh, part two brings up a very interesting point about, uh, you know, getting to a point where, um, you know, awareness, uh, is self perpetuating almost instantaneously, um, uh, you know, up here in about 10 years, uh, the information will become, uh, self aware, uh, and, you know, it's taken, uh, you know, hundreds and thousands of years to get to that point, but way back then, how do we know that they, they didn't already go there? And then it was, there was some sort of, you know, like the fall, you know, there was a, uh, uh, you know, a dramatic loss of, of knowledge and, and capability.
2: Yeah, it makes you start thinking capability. about. Yeah, it makes you start thinking about what that biblical fall really was.
1: Well, yeah, again, that's I've always sort of uh, had a sense that, that that biblical fall was was um, a uh, loss a of god and far-reaching than uh, just the uh, you yeah. know very mundane example that's given in the Bible and, and Gilgamesh and in and other you know ancient writings.
2: Right, um, that uh, the the fall was a loss of of godlike powers. Right, and then you know t- that was changed over, since uh, Roman times and even before that to well, godlike times, powers yeah. installed in the in the state and the church and all that. Right. Uh, yeah. Oh, they're coming oh. to
1: get you, Greg. Huh? They're coming to get you.
2: Yeah, I know. <laughs> They it seems like every off. T- every time turn i do- off. every time I do a show, I get at least four or five um, <laughs> sirens going by we're at a we 're at a kind of a busy intersection, and if i don 't keep the window open, it gets really hot in here, and it screws yeah. me up and it screws the equipment up. you know one other thing that comes to mind when you talk about uh, we talk about a medium to um, manifest whatever it is that's unseen or not time bound or whatever was an experiment done by um, uh, Paul Devereaux, I think, right. based on some—you probably have heard of this too—based on some uh, information he'd gotten from uh, studying the uh, druids, I believe, and those beehive, uh, what they call uh, burial mounds. But they, he's his idea is not used for burial at all. They were and they were used for um, ceremonies because they found out by putting an oscilloscope in there. They could send set up a standing wave at like a middle E or something like that. A standing right. wave within these in these uh, beehive-shaped I don't know they're like 50 feet tall and maybe 100 feet around uh, mounds inside. And uh, if they if you burn a fire in there, apparently the smoke will separate into sheets in between the places where the uh, where the nodes of the sound are. Wow. Which means that you could, since that's a middle E or, you know, a E below C or something like that, it's perfectly within the range of human voice. So if you could get enough people chanting at the same time and set up a standing wave with the smoke, you could use that smoke as a, as a divination tool. And that's, that right. was his theory about it. I've heard about it, and I heard about this like 10 years ago, but I've never been able to talk to Devereux directly about it or find out more about it. Well,
1: it's kind of reminiscent of the uh, you know Bruce Cafe and 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 the Earth Grid and and uh, the, the geomancers right. and and the fact that uh, the bluestone um, megalithic sites uh, like Stonehenge and and others uh, tend to tend to occur at, at specific nodal points, uh, ley lines, if you will, or or um, you know the Chinese would have a different uh, interpretation of, of of the energy grid that exists yeah. in nature and. You know, I mean, it was said that Merlin was able to talk into, uh, you know, into a standing stone and then transmit his voice down this grid to, to a, you know, another wizard or adept at, at another site and be able to communicate with them. Uh, and, and that, you know, I mean, it sounds like you know a fairy tale or something to, to the average person, but if you really start to do your research and you start to realize that, that there are. Uh, you know, Tesla was able to stick a rod in the ground with a with a light bulb on it and be able to light it up with just the, uh, the individual right. energy. That observed. came to
2: mind immediately when you mentioned communicating with through the earth, because we've had uh, Joseph Farrell on, and uh, more specifically Sesh Hari, who wrote a great book called. Um, uh, wonder of the worlds, and we it uh, one of the main characters in it—is Tesla. But we got off into you know not just talking about the book, but about what Tesla did. And he said that he'd found he'd found where energy flows in the earth and what channels it takes. And he was he, he was trying to get people to understand that he was able to use that to uh, transmit power or messages right, or whatever.
1: Back at that point, uh, with the you know the onset of the uh, the large oil company Standard Oil and what have you. I mean. They didn't want to hear about free energy back then. Well, it was even uh, before like oil. They don't want to hear about it now.
2: Yeah, it was George Westinghouse <laughs> saying, well, how are we going to charge for power if people could just stick a rod in the ground and take, take it out?
1: Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> it's funny. You know, I live here in Arizona, and you go down to Phoenix, and you think out of all the places on the planet that would should be covered with solar panels, there's hardly a solar panel in sight anywhere you go in Phoenix. It's like, what's up with that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> kind of like the forest for the trees you know what I mean
2: (laughs) yeah exactly
1: yeah so you know I I, I think there's a paradigm shift coming Uh, if not we're you know the haves and the have nots are really going to have it out uh, let's put it that way and something has got to change I think um, interested people um, out there in the the audience and and where have you uh, need to really get motivated to start looking into these subject areas that we've been talking about, especially where it deals uh, with energy, and you know, right. energy again is is a very malleable thing, and um, it, it's a matter of being able to, you know, harness technology and and do it in a way that benefits the whole, not just the one percent at the top of the pyramid, uh, you know, the one percent that controls ninety percent of the wealth. Uh, you know, I hate to. Get political here, or even family. I don't
2: hate that you get political. political. You're supposed to be on I this mean, station. We
1: all, <laughs> you know, we, we really have uh, tremendous opportunities in this uh, you know 21st century, and uh, and it's got to happen within the next 10 years. Or you know, some real major stuff coming down. Yeah, well, a major uh, thing, thing is coming down now. That.
2: Major things are coming down now. We're getting worse hurricanes, and they're more. And they're more strong and they're more frequent. And uh, I don't know if New Orleans got hit again, but I read a quote from a climatologist saying uh, Katrina is going to be like an almost an every year event.
1: Yeah, um, and again, that's weather, uh, not climate. And there's quite yeah, the but the climate is affected. it a natural ebb and flow. But you know, again, I I, I think the whole concept of, of energy and and uh, being able to uh, get the biggest bang for the buck, uh, or <laughs> for no dollars at all. Uh, Right. Kind of hard to put a price on sunlight, you know. Um, and just just building, uh, you know, with a passive solar design and in, in, in a proper proper manner, uh, depending on your latitude, um, you know, I I, I built uh, tire houses that at forty below you could you could uh, heat the entire house um, with just the pilot lights on your stove and your water heater. Uh huh. Um, yeah, I mean, there's ways to maximize the potential, shall we say, without, you know, uh, raping the planet for its, uh, you know, its natural resources that, uh, especially, you know, petroleum based uh, resources that, you know, everybody's going to war over and and killing each other over. It's uh, ridiculous. We need to, uh, you know, we need to find a better way to, um, you know, meet the energy needs of an emerging third world in China and and other places, and and we really need to, uh, you know, get out of our own profit motive, um, and really, uh, start doing the right thing for the, for the
2: whole. It's funny that you say we because there's always an us and them thing, the, the people in control and the rich people against everybody else. Well, so, it, how do you, how can you reconcile you know, that? It's, we're,
1: we're all part of the same, uh, closed system here. And, yeah. you know, whatever you do is going to have repercussions. It's going to bounce around in this, uh, blue marble floating in space. So, you know, we really have to work together. We have to get, at, you know, um, beyond our, you know, profit motive agendas and, and really do the right thing for um, for the whole um, as opposed to the, uh, you know, the agenda of the few.
2: Right. You know what? We've got a few minutes left here, and we said we were going to get to Ray because I want to have him on in the next right, couple right. of weeks. Oh, boy. Ray Stanford. Yes, it's yeah. a very big subject, but what I found yeah. interesting <laughs> was that he was trying to do – some sort of, you know, scientific based investigation of of uh UFO sightings and effects he and was all the first that one. Way, way, way back in the in yep. the fifties and sixties. Yep. And he's been continuing that up to the present day. Yep. Um and while it sounds it's it a lot of the stuff we're talking about here and the stuff that Ray's talking about sounds pretty wacky. When you right. get down to brass tacks and find out what he, he was trying he is trying to do and has done, um it's something that for some reason is, is horribly ignored.
1: Well, he's kind of been in a self imposed exile. He's, um, to be honest with you, Greg, he doesn't really, um, he's not quite sure. He hasn't reconciled himself to uh, to figure out whether uh, the public really has a need to know some of the things that he's been able to, to um, analyze and, and uncover and discover in terms of uh, the UFO phenomenon, how these craft are. Um, uh, you know what energy um, they're using, how they're harnessing uh, particular energies, um, the actual um, physical science behind the uh, propulsion systems. Um, he's been working 25 years analyzing um, his 59 films that he's uh, taken of UFOs. Uh, Ray is very, very sensitive. Um, Edgar Casey's family um, in the early 60s uh, were convinced that he was the next Edgar Casey. He turned his back on that and went into uh nuts and bolts uh, you know, data, hard hard data and hard uh, scientific investigation of the UFO phenomenon. And because he is very sensitive, he's able to pick up on the energetic uh the magnetic field, uh, if you will, of objects when they're nearby and he's able to grab his uh, you know, fully loaded and ready um film camera and we're not talking video, uh and run outside and get films. And he's gotten four films, for instance, out airliner windows. Um, Two of his best films were taken um, at 30,000 feet, including one sequence uh, over Mexico where an object came down from a mothership and came very close to the plane and the optical effect of the, of filming the magnetic field collapsed the horizon. you know, on the other side of the the object that was down 10,000 feet below the plane, it optically collapsed the horizon because of the strength of the magnetic field. If you know anything about science, you'll know that you can uh, analyze that uh, particular uh, sequence of film and come up with some amazing uh, data.
2: I it's wonder why it didn't to, uh, wreck the plane. Dude. I wonder again. why that didn't wreck the plane.
1: Uh, good question. It all happened within two or three frames. Uh, it was very quick. Uh-huh. Uh, it looked like a Gemini space capsule, actually, he said <laughs> And I, I've seen a still photograph of it And uh, these objects actually are, are fairly common uh, Generally they're associated with water uh, There's a famous sighting uh, uh, in Jutland uh, Where these objects were seen uh, uh, entering and leaving the uh, one of the fjords up there uh-huh. Uh-huh. But uh, Ray is, uh, you know, I've met pretty much uh, almost, you know everybody in the field, um, over the years and gotten friendly with quite a number and uh nobody can hold the candle to Ray in terms of his observational skills and his analytical um uh, meticulous analytical abilities. Um he can look at any UFO photograph and tell you if it's real or not without even really analyzing it. He just knows what to look for and if it ain't there it ain't real. And um uh, you know, uh there's very few people that can say they've have fifty nine films of UFOs Including the very famous opening sequence to the uh, Leonard Nimoy uh, show, uh, In Search Of. Yeah. Well, the opening shot of the UFO hovering in the clouds, that's a Ray Stanford footage from (laughs) 1956, one of the only films uh, rated as a true unknown in Project
2: Blue Book. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I uh, can't wait to have Ray on, then. I'm going to have to do some... He sent me an extremely long email... After yeah. I talk to him, and I'm, I'm going to have to go through it, and I I, I yeah. hope he's not he's, insulted. He's really I didn't. Anderson he, he brought
1: all the contactees in the 50s. I mean, he got to be friendly with with most of the big ones: George Hunt uh, Williamson, George Van Tassel. Oh my God, George the Dancy, stories he told me! Yeah. A lot of Georges back then in the contactees. Yeah, I don't know
2: if you noticed that, but yeah, they're all uh, Georges in the 50s, and everybody in the 80s on was Bill. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Hamilton, uh, Bill you know, English, it's interesting. Bill and out Lord. of all the
1: contactees, Daniel Fry, all those guys. You know the one that he thinks may have been the real? The one. Dan, um,
2: uh, Truman Truman Bathroom. Bathroom, yes.
1: And Aura Raines, the little diminutive, like four, I think she was like four foot, eight inches tall yeah, or she lo- something. Yeah, she
2: looked like a beatnik the, chick.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> who, who had a medallion made for him before she left by a jeweler uh, in the local town uh, near where Truman lived. And um, had this guy build uh, make this medallion as a going away present before she left on her uh, her ship with her thirty two crew members.
2: You know and, what? Uh, I never got around to asking him about uh, Orfeo Angelucci, who, who actually has a huh? Uh, who Orfeo Angelucci it rings
1: the bell, but you got me on that one actually.
2: Oh well, he's one of the few few uh, contactees that that. Uh, Maintain a decent uh, uh, reputation because it doesn't seem like he was really out to make a profit or anything like that. He seemed like genuinely mystified as to what was right, going yeah, on to with him. Same, and
1: with yeah. Andalucci was he the Spanish uh, one?
2: That, no, no, explain? no. He was. He was. He 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 was in the United States. He actually lived in Glendale, Glendale, California. Huh. And uh, uh, in the. Uh, flying saucers modern myth of things seen in the skies by jung he was actually cited as somebody that that jung thought had some validity at least from where he was coming from okay, as that's somebody
1: in the name yeah yeah as somebody that had Classic a book i recommend it to all you listening
2: yeah true true mystical experience that that had um, archetypal and historic underpinnings Right. So I didn't mention him to Ray because the stories he was telling me were just so great. And most yeah. of the contactees, he he just proceeded to chop them all to ribbons, except oh, for Bethlehem. Oh,
1: well, uh, even got so embarrassed being around Ray and his twin brother that he actually showed him his photographic uh, studio where he hoaxed all his shots.
2: Yeah, he told me that yeah. uh, up there in Palomar.
1: <laughs> the the famous one of the mothership and then the little glowing orbs around it yeah. that, that, that uh, you see all over the place, Damsky. Uh, Ray Ray was uh, actually shown how he got the objects to glow. And, yeah, it was
2: radium paint.
1: Uh, yeah, with with radioactive paint. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder Adamski died young. <laughs> 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 oh man. Chris and, and Ray does do a, a really uh, amazingly accurate. Uh, I don't know. Adamski impersonation. This, heard, uh, recordings of Adamski. I just Ray played one. Them.
2: I just he played just, one before we came on the air. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Ray can do a mean a dance He's yeah. got the, the you know the, the Polish uh, <laughs> accent yeah. down cold. It's actually quite frightening.
2: <laughs> Chris, we've well, run out of time. Do you want to uh, hype anything right before we go? Like well, the uh, TMV side. Remind
1: everybody out there that I am uh, coming out with a book this spring on Adventures Unlimited Press, uh, and uh, uh, who actually uh, published one of Greg's books. Uh, you know the the. Uh,
2: uh, wake up excluded, down there. Uh,
1: middle anthology. Um, anyway, it's called Secrets of the Mysterious Valley. It's going to have uh, the salient points from the first two books and then a complete section of new material. And, um, you know, I do, again, if you're interested in the haunted uh, uh, investigative material that I was talking about, do go to deadwhisper.com. It's one word, dead, as in, as a doornail. Whisper.com. And, uh, um, if you'd like to get more information about my, uh, work, you know, TMV, the mysterious valley, the initials, u s is my, uh, my website. And, uh, my email address, if you have any questions, is, uh, my initials, Chris O'Brien, COB, COB at TMV.us. So, Greg, it's always a pleasure, man, to be on your show. It's my favorite show to do. Uh, you're by far the best, uh, uh, most up-to-speed uh, host out there doing uh, doing the work in the trenches here with people like myself, and it's always a pleasure to be on. And I really do appreciate the opportunity to share all this stuff with uh, you listeners.
2: Well, I can't say anything better than back uh, better than that, except right back at you. And thanks so much for cool. being on again and yep. uh we'll have you on again real soon in fact probably after ray's on to try and download everything he said <laughs> and oh boy, maybe we'll have we'll try and get you on the, at same the
1: same time with him boy boy you, you, you be ready
2: <laughs> okay well we'll have two phones here and we'll get you both on and we'll have a big round table go that'll be great
1: because uh i may be able to help uh you know keep him uh keep him on uh on subject uh he he's just uh he's very enthusiastic about his work and uh He's uh hasn't really you know, he's done shit he even did the Donahue show. He was on To Tell the Truth. Remember yeah. that show in the sixties? Yeah. He talked he about He was it. actually on To Tell the Truth. He was returning back from that on the plane when he got his first uh airliner footage, actually, uh. as a little <laughs> side note. But uh I'd be I'd love to have a chance to be a fly on the wall on that particular interview, believe me. Maybe even help out.
2: Yeah, I think it'll be it'll be much more on the fly on the wall, and particularly if I don't talk to Ray too much before the interview again. So, sure, uh, man. all right, thanks so much again, Chris, and all we'll right, talk Greg, to you thanks again a lot, soon. And
1: everybody out there, uh, if you can't be safe, be sanitary. <laughs>
2: thanks, Chris. All right, bye. <laughs>
5: be true. I find myself alone when day is through. Yes, I'll admit that I'm a fool for you. wait to keep me on your side you give me calls for love that i can't hide for you i know i'd even try to